Support for this program is brought to you by Genentech, the makers of Abysmo, Farisimab SVOA. There's more to explore. Discover all the data at vabysmo-hcp.com. That's V-A-B-Y-S-M-O-H-C-P.com. Welcome, everyone, to the new Retina Radio Journal Club with BBS. My name is Yasha Modi from NYU Langone, and I'm joined today with Kyle Kovacs from Wild Cornell, my next-door neighbor, as well as Priya Vakaria from Retina Vitris Associates of Florida. So today, guys, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here. And uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about biosimilars, and we're going to discuss two papers and before we get into the weeds, before we get into the details of these papers, perhaps Priya, would you like to just sort of tell us a little bit about biosimilars, the market, what's FDA approved, and the rationale for why uh, this even exists? So first, let's define what the biologic is. So we've all been using biologics for years. Those are the drugs that we typically inject in the eye, such as ranibizumab and aflibercept. And these are genetically engineered proteins that are tightly regulated, tightly developed, and are very, um, you know, very regulated by the FDA to aim for consistent clinical performance. And as you know, there can be very expensive clinical trials to uh, approve these products for different indications. Biosimilar agents or biosimilars are very similar to the biologics, but they're not the exact same product. They mimic the therapeutic endpoint, but they're not an exact copy. However, they have to show an absence of any clinical clinically meaningful differences. And the reason that biosimilars kind of came about is because in 2009, there was the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act that was passed to allow for an abbreviated approval pathway for biosimilars. And this basically is supposed to provide greater access for patient care to biologic products. Ranibizumab's patent expired in 2020 and Aflibercept's patent will expire in 2023. And so with the advent of these patent expirations, there are now biosimilar products that are coming into market. Currently, as of October 2022, there are two ranibizumab biosimilars approved in the United States. Uh, there is Bioviz and Simurly, um, which are the two that are currently approved for the treatment of renal vascular disease. Great. And we, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about those two papers uh, today and kind of get like a little bit more into the details. Uh, and, and so Kyle, do, do you guys have any experience with biosimilars? It's kind of an interesting time because obviously biosimilars have entered into some of our other disciplines like rheumatology or others. Those are obviously infusion-based biosimilars that are already on the market. But I think that there's obviously some reluctance across the field of ophthalmology or hesitancy or wariness of any new products that we're entering into the market. Uh, I think with, with our prior experience with other medications recently that have, that have come out. Um, so I, I think the, the, the eye is a, is a little bit of a different animal than infusion-based therapies. So I think we're very eager to see the data and some of the larger population data on, on biosimilars in the eye. Well, that's, that's wonderful. And actually, I think probably, you know, when we're talking about biosimilars, it kind of makes a little bit of sense just to talk a little bit about the paper. Now, again, remember Priya saying they have to demonstrate uh, equivalence. And, you know, one of the things that I find fascinating is that, you know, these are all made in E. coli, whether it's actually the 
um, the biosimilar or whether it's the reference drug. And so even the reference drug may be different from batch to batch, including the biosimilar. So let's go and talk a little bit about uh, the first paper. The first paper is biosimilar SB11 versus reference ranibizumab in neovascular AMD. And this is a one-year phase three randomized clinical trial. Uh, Neil Bressler being the first author, this published in October of 2021 in Ophthalmology Retina. Bria, can you give me a little bit of a summary on this paper and uh, maybe some of the highlights? Uh, so this paper um, is looking at biosimilar SB11, also known as BioVis, produced by Samsung Biogen, as compared to reference ranibizumab. And this is looking at patients who are treated for nevascular AMD, looking at one-year results of this randomized trial. In this trial, patients are randomized one-to-one -one either to SB11 or ranibizumab. And um, only 705 patients were included in this trial. But overall, again, they're looking to demonstrate that SB11 is equivalent to ranibizumab. And so in terms of the findings, they found that SB11 as compared to monthly ranibizumab had similar changes in baseline visual acuity, had similar improvement in central subfield thickness. Uh, the proportion of patients who lost or gained 15 letters was similar at all time points. Overall quality of life assessments were comparable between the two treatment groups. And in terms of safety, which is one of the biggest things that we're looking at, the incidence of treatment emergent adverse events were similar in both arms. And so in summary, um, they found that there were no significant differences between the two groups of uh, 705 patients total. Um, and this uh, helped to prove uh, efficacy and, and similarity of, of SB11. Great. Th thank you so much, Priya, for that outline. You know, I, I think when we talk about biosimilar clinical trial design, you know, one interesting thing is normally when we think about a, a reference drug trying to get FDA uh, approval, we're talking about a visual acuity primary endpoint at a year. Now, Kyle, on the flip side here, what we have is we actually have the primary endpoint being at week eight for visual acuity and then actually central subfield thickness at week four. So maybe can you talk a little bit about what's the rationale for this and like why are we seeing a, a totally different primary endpoint between FDA registration trials and biosimilar trials? Yeah, it's a great point. It's completely different study design. Um, you know, obviously we're, they're looking for something that's going to quickly mimic the drying profile of the reference agent, right? They're looking for something that's actually going to have effect in the same time frame. Um, as a not necessarily the duration, uh, although this trial has secondary endpoints looking out to 48 weeks. And as, as Priya was mentioning, sort of a parallel curve on central subfield thickness and letters gain that profiles out to 48 weeks. But as you said, the primary endpoint, it's crazy to me to think, right, as we're so used to looking at the pivotal trials, looking at year um, outcomes out to a year, it's, it's sort of wrapping your head around something that is four weeks, eight weeks. Um, as the primary outcome. Very different for frame of reference for us. Yeah, you know, one of the nice parts of the study is that it does actually go out to a year. So even though the FDA has recommended this abbreviated time point, exactly as you said, to sort of demonstrate uh, clinical uh, equivalence across the reference product, uh, we do have that one-year data that's much more uh, something that we're much more accustomed to seeing. Uh, so Priya, I just wanted to uh, touch base, you know, this is 705 patients, you know, we always talk about biosimilar studies being considerably smaller, 
what are your thoughts on 700 patients? What do we think about efficacy, safety? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that it calls to light is safety. Um, we've all lived and experienced other drugs that have thousands of patients who are tested and safety signals come out years later. And so I think that's the biggest concern here is, you know, is this truly enough patients and do we have enough follow-up here to, to know if these products are safe? Um, I think that is the biggest concern with the smaller number of patients, but again, a lot of post-marketing surveillance will hopefully help take care of some of those concerns. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, when you think about uh, even FDA registrations trials, all of these studies, they're designed on a power calculation to determine some degree of efficacy, and rather none of them are actually powered for safety. So I think you're absolutely right about sort of uh, post-FDA approval surveillance looking for safety signals. We learned this lesson in brolicizumab where, you know, even though that the safety signals were there potentially in Hawk and Harrier, there were things that weren't really well established until all of a sudden we exponentially increased the number of patients relative to what was enrolled in a registration clinical trial. So uh, moving on, I thought maybe we would introduce another biosimilar paper. So this is the efficacy and safety of biosimilar FYB201 compared with ranibizumab in neovascular age-related macular degeneration. The first author is Frank Holtz. This paper was published in January 2022 in ophthalmology. Uh, Kyle, would you want to give us a summary of this paper? Sure. Thanks, Yasha. Um, so this was a prospective phase three clinical trial looking at FYB201 uh, compared to our reference molecule ranibizumab over 48 weeks, as we were talking about, just like the other trial, with the primary outcome assessed at eight weeks. Um, so FYB201 is ranibizumab. Uh, EQRN, which in the United States is now FDA approved as summarily, um, and the EU is called uh, Renovizio. FYB uh, 201, again, was approved by the FDA in August of 2022, uh, and it was based in large part based on the findings from this study, which was designed explicitly in discussion with the regulatory authorities in the US and in the EU, which will come up in a little bit in the study population design. Um, this uh, study had 477 patients with wet AMD randomly assigned to a one-to-one -one monthly of either the FYB201 or ranibizumab 0.5 milligrams, um, so obviously considerably smaller than the study we were just discussing. Um, and the study was divided into a U.S.-focused cohort and then an EU-focused cohort with slightly different enrollment criteria based on uh, vision, again, based on discussion with the regulatory authorities. The primary outcome uh, was improvement in ETRS letters at eight weeks with a whole bunch of secondary outcomes. Again, sort of like what we discussed, letters at 48 weeks, change in foveal center point, subfield thickness at 48 weeks. And uh, the cohorts were fairly balanced, similar dropout rates. And at week eight, there were improvements from baseline in both cohorts of about five and a half letters. So similar primary, uh, similar outcomes for the primary outcome. About a half letter difference was well within the predefined equivalence margin for the study. And these letter gains were comparable out to the 48-week study end date, as were reductions in uh, foveal center point thickness and uh, central subfield thickness. Um, there was a whole series of antibody testing and sort of surveying uh, for uh, immune reactions or immunogenicity of the medication. There was similar uh, neutralizing antibody formation and anti-drug antibodies across the different cohorts. 
And in terms of safety, findings are similar in both arms. Most re were related to the injection procedure. Um, there was one case of irritus colitis in the uh, FYB201 group and none in the other group. Yeah, so interesting. In a phase three study, you have PK data and you have antibody data. Priya, what's the sort of thought process behind that? Why are we seeing this in uh, sort of late stage uh, clinical trials here? You know, I think that what they're trying to do is they're trying to show similar um, a, a similar kind of antigen profile to the reference drug. They just have to kind of show general similarity is my understanding. Um, and so I think that's essentially why they're including that in this phase three trial. Well, you know, the, uh, the interesting thing is with these two studies uh, conducted, we now have two FDA approved ranibizumab biosimilars. So we're going to cut to a commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what does this mean in the clinical world? Or when are we going to use these? What's the idea of having uh, sort of competitive biosimilars? So we'll take a break. We'll be right back. Support for this program is brought to you by Genentech, the makers of Abismo, Farisimab SVOA. There's more to explore. Discover all the data at vibismo-hcp.com. That's V-A-B-Y-S-M-O-HCP.com. Welcome back to the new Retina Radio Journal Club with VBS. And again, I'm here with Priya and Kyle. And we've just discussed two biosimilar papers, notably that these are papers that are both done in macular degeneration. So Kyle, what does this mean? What is it? What do we know about well, what is FDA approved? What are the indications that are available for these two different uh, different drugs? Uh, well, this is obviously a, a lucrative a lucrative field that we're, that people are trying to get into and undercut, I think, some of the uh, price of the medications that we're currently using on the market, right? And I think there's ample opportunity and insurers are going to be very excited about the potential opportunity to um, treat wet macular de degeneration, which has increasing burden in our uh, in our country uh, to our profession, right? With something that's going to be potentially uh, much less expensive than our current uh, FDA approved options. I, uh, I wonder still why, you know, we were discussing this eight week um, primary endpoint. And, and Yasha, I heard that you had some more insight exactly why these, the primary endpoint for all these trials is exactly eight weeks. Well, you know, I mean, I think that's a great question and, and I didn't quite know the answer to this. Uh, I, interestingly, I was actually at a wedding, uh, this past weekend and it was, uh, one of our retina colleagues who got married. And so it felt like a retina meeting practically. Uh, and I had, and Peter Kaiser was there who has a lot of experience, uh, with, uh, with biosimilars and has actually played a very active role in, uh, uh the guidance to, uh, uh, to some of these companies. And he was saying that actually this is an FDA mandate because if you're going to demonstrate clinical efficacy, then uh, typically after the first two injections at your eight-week time point before you receive your third injection, you're going to see the most bang for your buck. Look at kind of all the curves in a registration trial. You know, you get the most amount of improvement through the first eight to 12 weeks, and then you get a plateau effect. So if you're trying to understand clinical efficacy of the drug, uh, to see what kind of visual improvement gains and central subfield thickness reductions we get oftentimes can be ascertained in a very quick fashion. And then obviously some of the follow-up uh, out to one year can provide us some more details about safety, PK values, and bioequivalence. Priya, what are the uh, FDA-approved indications for these two drugs? 
Great question. So the FDA approved indications are going to be similar to what the target biologic is FDA approved for. So let's bring it back to the two medications that we just discussed. So those are all using uh, reference product ranibizumab, also known as Lucentis here in the United States. And so ranibizumab is currently approved for five indications. It's approved for wet AMD, macular edema following retinal vein occlusion, myopic cordial vascularization, diabetic retinopathy, and diabetic macular edema. But for those of you who have injected the product, you know, there's two different dosages. There's the 0.3 and the 0.5 milligram dose. And so the two products that we discussed are actually approved for different indications. Um, the uh, BioViz is actually approved for everything that the 0.5 milligram dose is approved for. And to remind our listeners, BioViz is also known as SB11. And BioViz is approved for wet AMD, myopic choroidal neovascularization, and macular edema following retinal vein occlusion. Whereas Simurly, also known as FYB201, is approved for all five indications because FYB201 actually was studied in both the 0.5 and 0.3 milligram dose. So it's an important distinction to keep in mind when treating patients is that if you have a patient with DME or DR, you actually cannot use uh, BioViz, but you can use Simurly because BioViz is not approved for the diabetic indications. Um, and that also brings us to the other point of extrapolation. So it's important to keep in mind that biosimilar drugs only need to be studied in one disease indication. And if they prove similarity in that one disease indication, then by extrapolation, they can be approved for all of the other indications that the reference product is approved for. And that's how both FYBU201 and uh, SB11 are approved for their target indications. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I guess that sort of like highlights the fact that really all they're looking for is biosimilarity uh, and, and equivalence. And if you get a, you know, one FDA approval, then certainly because they're not looking at necessarily efficacy in a disease state, they're just trying to essentially mimic the other drug, the reference drug. I guess that certainly makes a lot of sense and certainly can cut down on the amount of work that these biosimilar companies have to do in terms of clinical trials. So just a, a question now of uh, what we do in clinical practice. Priya, have you used a biosimilar before? You know, I haven't used any biosimilars to date, um, but I'm sure that the time will come and, um, you know, with insurance companies and payers getting, uh, you know, wind of biosimilars, I'm, I'm, I'm certain that many of us will, will use them more. Kyle, have you used any biosimilars in practice? I have not, although when I was a fellow with Murnali Gupta, we had an interesting mandate come down from our pharmacists at New York Presbyterian asking us to use bevacizumab ziv in intraocularly as a part in the OR when we all sometimes give a vasin at the end of our cases, and which precipitated kind of an interesting back and forth discussion about have there been any ocular intraocular studies of this medication before you mandate that we actually that we use it. That's about as close as I've ever gotten to considering biosimilar use in the eye. And Priya, what are the finances of this? You know, we already have compounded bevacizumab available for somewhere between $30 to $50, depending on where we get it from. What's the price point for these? And uh, how does that sort of play into our decision-making on what, what, when and where we're going to use this product? Yeah, so, you know, the economics definitely play a part, especially in practices that really rely on rebates or rely on, on these drugs to kind of help maintain some of their profits. So I think it, the, the, the cost, as far as I understand is, 
you know, certainly much more expensive than repackaged bevacizumab. Um, you know, I don't know the exact cost and I think some of the financials will also vary practice to practice. Um, but I do think that there, it is a very lucrative, uh, source of revenue potentially for retina practices, although in, and a lot of those specifics will vary practice to practice. Yeah, you know, this is certainly brand new territory. We've got two uh, excellent papers demonstrating uh, bioequivalence, and now that has resulted in two reference ranibizumab products FDA approved. Uh, it's an exciting time in retina. There's no doubt about it. Well, and I wanted to thank Kyle and Priya for joining us here uh, and hope to see you guys soon. Thank you.